Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be understood as or considered a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Adam Childers, back again with the podcast Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. I'm here again in the Crow's Nest in uh, downtown Oklahoma City. The calendar is getting close to changing to October, which means I'll blink and Halloween will have happened and Thanksgiving and Christmas too, but it's that time of year where everything goes really, really quickly, but that doesn't mean that I still don't have time to get together, to put together what is now episode 21 of Briefly Legal, and I am excited because we're going to be having a repeat guest this time, someone that uh, a lot of good comments about the first time he was here. We'll see if he can keep up uh, you know, the good rapport with our uh, listeners. That guest is Tim Sawecki. Say hello to everybody, Tim. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. So let's get to know Tim uh, just a little bit better. He's an associate attorney, primarily focused on his work in the Energy, Environment, and Natural Resources Practice Group. Under the broad banner of environmental work, he tackles the alphabet soup of federal environmental regulations under the CWA, the Clean Water Act, the CAA, the Clean Air Act, and the TSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act. It must be something about the alphabet he really enjoys because you might recall he was here with us in a previous episode about forever chemicals when he talked to us about PFAS, uh, which is uh, another part of that alphabet soup and, and really a terrific episode. I highly recommend it to your listeners to go back and hear that episode as well. Tim, as part of his energy work, he helps clients uh, with construction and compliant operation of pipelines. And in that capacity, he finds himself immersed in the topic that we're here to talk about today, and that is eminent domain. Um, now, when I hear eminent domain, I, you know, I think maybe there's a cool new video game coming out that I might need to know about. But uh, no, it is a, a legal term with uh, great significance, particularly for someone like Tim, because eminent domain comes up quite a bit for our clients and for members of the business community in that area. So, Tim, as we jump into this topic, let me just start with the bedrock for today's discussion. Just tell us, broadly speaking, what is eminent domain? Yeah, well, it's it's certainly a, a foreboding two words, a term that is used to describe the, the power of the government to take private property for public use. And depending on which side of that equation you're on, it it provokes uh, quite strong feelings in those that have experienced eminent domain. Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. It's, uh, it's a high stakes mechanism that is, in theory, used sparingly, but when it is used, has, has great consequences. So, Tim, for our loyal listeners out there, uh, I have remarked to him earlier, but I'll uh, compliment him uh, as we tape this. He comes more prepared than anyone else I've ever had and came with quite the outline of topics that for us to discuss today. And, and, and I'm just going to go ahead and lay them out here because some of them are just fun to say. And so I'm going to take that part away from you. But we have five things to, to consider today in the 
realm of eminent domain. The, the first is, and this feels a little bit like uh, like Jeopardy, uh, uh, you know, categories. First is just enough Latin to cover hundreds of years of property law. Next up, we have Constitution for 200. Uh, number three, the time SCOTUS bulldozed a woman's cute pink house in New London, Connecticut. Indeed. Uh, that's yeah. a story worth hearing, I'm sure. Yep. Uh, four, pipeline lines at the pipeline crossroads of the world and in light of continued infrastructure build-out. Now, that one, that one just sounds heady. I'm, I'm excited for that. And then finally— <laughs> The next frontier. Exactly. And then finally, lining it all into a timely point, how does this fit into the one— trillion infrastructure bill that is scheduled for vote in the House on Thursday. So look at that. You you tie it up with a nice bow and bring it to uh, a land of relevance with the upcoming legislative fight before us. So that's an exciting roadmap. Let's let's get started. I uh, Alex, I'll take part one Latin for a hundred. Let's talk about you know why you chose Latin as our springboard for this discussion. Uh, well, other than, you know, out the gate, putting a bunch of people to sleep. Um, <laughs> now, now I, I was in Latin club, I, I, so I may have even gone to a quiz bowl or two where Latin came up. So I'm certainly engaged. Well, then you'll have to forgive me. But in order to discuss eminent domain, we need to start um, with private property and how it is understood under modern law and to understand the concept of private property under modern law. We've got this beautiful um, Latin phrase that reads, and, and this is where you'll have to forgive me for butchering it. It is referred to as ad coelum et ad inferos. Well, that and sounded so, good to me. Yeah. Hey, hey that sounded good. <laughs> and uh, usually it's reduced to ad coelum for short amongst us kind of property law nerds. And what's exquisite, what's quite elegant about this phrase is the translation is quite literally, whoever's is the soil, it is theirs all the way to heaven and all the way to hell. So this is that idea that, hey, I own private property and therefore I own really the subsurface to that property and I own up to the heavens. So it's this great way to conceptualize private property law, hundreds of years of private property law, and especially private property law here in the United States. I just learned that my property line extends significantly further than I thought. <laughs> yeah, and these are the subjects of debate in eminent domain these these days. You know, wh where does my wind space right end and where does the government's right to um, control for, for airspace regulation hmm. begin? And these are the kind of tricky dynamics that we engage in on a day-to-day -day basis when wrestling with eminent domain. But, you know, after describing this, this concept of private property rights, we also need to acknowledge that we live in the United States, a society that was founded on, on a certain amount of, of centralized government for the purposes of, of governing the people and in the public interest. So enter this term eminent domain. And eminent domain is this inherent sovereign power to take private property and use it for a public use. And so the framers recognized that, hey, you know, the framers of the Constitution recognized, hey, that the government shouldn't willy nilly be able to 
take my private property for public use. So enter the Bill of Rights, enter the Fifth Amendment, and they drafted the takings clause, which reads, nor shall private property be taken for a public use without providing just compensation to the owner of that private property. Which obviously then is open to a a lot of fights, right? Like uh, what is uh, a, a proper public use? What is just compensation? What is even private property? Uh, so, but like all good, uh, uh, you know, theories, you, you got to start with the with the the definition, and from there the fights begin, right? Exactly. So we've got the sovereign with you know this inherent and conceivably absolute power to take uh, private property, but then we've got the private property interest, which is protected by our Bill of Rights in the Fifth Amendment. And states have similar takings clauses in their own constitutions and actually get to apply those Fifth Amendment takings protections by way of the 14th Amendment. So does Oklahoma fall suit in that regard? Yeah, Oklahoma has its own constitutional provision, the takings clause, as we call it. And that can be found in Article 2, Section 24. And what's really unique about Oklahoma's taking clauses is it's arguably more protective of private property rights than the United States Constitution in the Fifth Amendment because it provides for compensation when a private property is taken or damaged. So that has been the source of much you know, consternation in our own Supreme Court and the navel-gazing and debates and, and protracted litigation amongst attorneys. But most states, again, have their own version of of a takings clause to protect these private property principles. Well, now that you mentioned that other states have these these taking clauses, I'm I'm remembering back to the most interesting of the uh, uh, five or so points that we laid out to talk about, and that was this pink house up in Connecticut. So now I'm wondering, did they have a takings clause up there? And more to the point. What happened to that poor lady's pink house? Yes. And herein is is kind of the, the modern where we're at in terms of eminent domain and, and the government's ability to take private property and provide compensation. So the scene is set. Pink house purchased on the Thames River, not the original Thames River in London, but New London, Connecticut, by a woman named Suzette Kello in 1997. This was going to be, you know, a home where she would probably grow old, but enter the city of New London, which in its own way had its own incentives to develop the economics of the city, um, increase its tax base. And in, in order to do that, it had identified this rusted out um, industrial area in the city of New London to exercise eminent domain and hand that over to developers to develop this this private property for what they were thinking is a public use. This dispute, we've got this pink house, this compelling woman holding out against kind of the bared fangs of economic development, if you will. Oh, I I like that imagery. Okay. And enter condemnation. Condemnation is is the exercise of eminent domain in courts of law. So she decided, hey, I don't want to sell my property. She wasn't willing to negotiate. So the city of New London sought condemnation of her property. This case goes all the way up to the United States Supreme Court in 2005. And the majority in a a very controversial 5-4 split of the court, the majority said, hey, because this is economic development, we are going to identify this taking as a public use and therefore it is permissible. And there were 
screams in the street. This was quite controversial because it rubs of this kind of libertarian property rights um, nerve that a lot of us have. You know, this concept of the government taking your property is quite abrasive um, on its face. What was interesting is, and I'll quote here, there's a couple great quotes from the dissent in that opinion. And first, we got Justice Sandra Day O'Connor commenting on the majority opinion, wrote, the specter of condemnation hangs over all property. Nothing is to prevent the state from replacing any Motel 6 with a Ritz-Carlton, any home with a shopping mall, or any farm with a factory. So she was acknowledging this, you know, that we're, we're, we're stepping on the little person here, the, the, the little pink house. Strong words. And the star of the day, a real fiery, awesome opinion came from Justice Clarence Thomas. And if you're like me, you're, you're a little wary of Justice Clarence Thomas a lot of the time. He doesn't speak often from the bench. At all. Um, no. <laughs> at all. <laughs> you know, this guy plays poker hard at the Supreme Court. But th- this dissent, um, he comes out booming. And, and the first line, he says, long ago, William Blackstone wrote that, quote, the law of the land postponed even public necessity to sacred and inviolable rights of private property. Now, that's a clunky sentence, and it came from William Blackstone, so it's clunky <laughs> for a reason. Um, but this booming you know, voice came from, from Justice Clarence Thomas saying, you know, we've extended this idea of public use beyond the pale here. If we're going to say that every time there's an economic win, um, it is a public use and the government can exercise eminent domain, then we've really just kind of made made the Fifth Amendment useless. We've rendered it useless. So in the aftermath of that opinion, a lot of states um, actually tried to limit the way that public use is, is described in terms of eminent domain law, because ultimately states can legislate and delegate out certain eminent domain rights. And, and we're used to seeing this, right? We see, you know, a, a controversial decision that, you know, kind of lights emotions on both sides. And then the pendulum swings back a little bit, whether that's through legislative action or, or court interpretation. So it sounds like it really was, you know, the states going back and saying, all right, we need to modify this some. Exactly. Exactly. Marbury versus Madison. The court is saying, you know, this is beyond us. We're going to set, you know, a line here in terms of the Fifth Amendment interpretation. It states if you want to circumscribe that in a different way, you got to do that through your legislative processes. So a lot of states said, hey, this economic development angle is too broad. So we need first a final determination of blight or something in order to proceed with uh, the exercise of, of eminent domain. Now, there's a shadow lurking here. Because what was never discussed in the controversy surrounding that Supreme Court decision is that on a regular basis, again, these legislatures, Oklahoma for one, delegate out eminent domain authority to private companies. And there's been great success in that regard, offering that carrot to build out certain infrastructure. We look to the transcontinental railroad and eminent domain rights that were given to railroads. And we look to, you know, post 2007 and kind of the hydraulic fracturing boom that kind of erased peak oil and turned, you know, the United States into a major oil and gas producing nation has been accompanied by a huge build out of pipelines. So there's been these express delegations of authority by the state legislatures. And those tend to be fairly uncontroversial. However, I'm sure that that means we've still got some fights left as we look forward to this 
gigantic trillion dollar infrastructure bill coming up where I'm sure pipelines are, are front and center. And I'm glad you mentioned that. So we've got this looming uh, infrastructure bill, $1 trillion to build out the nation's aging roads, rail systems, telecommunications, offering the internet to rural areas. All of those entities under most states have some form of eminent domain right for private companies to facilitate the build out of these processes. So another kind of thing we've got going on that is that is clearly, call it what you will, trending in, in, in this society right now is this discussion of, you know, renewable energy and how are we going to integrate that into our existing grid supply. We've got grid failure in this past year that really brought to home for a lot of people the tenuousness of our energy supplies. So if you plant that little bug into the infrastructure plan and we revisit this kind of history of providing some entities with eminent domain rights for these types of infrastructure build-outs for, again, this public use, there's nothing to prevent a movement um, at the state level in terms of legislature for aiding this infrastructure build-out by offering, perchance, eminent domain authority to folks that want to put in more renewable energy infrastructure. We've done that with pipelines. We've done that um, with transmission facilities in some light. We've done that with water pipelines. We've done that with a lot of these things that as a society we're going to need moving forward, kind of in the, this kind of energy, you know, doom, gloom, for better or for worse, however your politics lie. You know, it's a fascinating discussion to consider using eminent domain authority to further this this infrastructure bill. So do you see a, you know, a resolution coming together on that bill that encompasses that kind of I don't want to call it progressive thought, but at least you know, a meeting of the minds or or is that likely to wind up with the cutting room floor? You know, that I think that the action will, will really be where it always lies in the legislatures is, is that these private interests do, you know, lobby around it. If I'm, um, you know, regulatory affairs in a company right now and I'm seeing a looming $1 billion infrastructure bill and I work for, you know, XYZ company, I'm going to want, you know, my legislator's ear and I'm going to advocate for maybe proposed language that could provide these, you know, build outs of infrastructure that might align with my private interests, but push that towards of legislation in the in the state houses. Absolutely. COVID takes up a lot of the air in the political room, but hopefully those who are, who are like yourself that are, you know, feeling the pulse of this situation are, you know, are helping to make a difference because it's, uh, it's, it's going to shape America for, you know, generations, however this shakes out. Absolutely. And, and I do want to, because this has been largely kind of more of a, a progressive conversation in how to use eminent domain as a tool. I do think that it, it warrants, um, you know, a, a certain disclaimer that if you're on the receiving end, again, like like Suzette Kello in 2005 with her pink house, it can be very a very difficult situation. Land holds so many values, extrinsic and intrinsic to all of us. 
So I want to also, you know, in the vein of this whole podcast, we've given acknowledge that, um, you know, the Suzette Kellos and the private property owners oftentimes face a lot of difficulties in the context of eminent domain. And I want to honor that. Um, but again, the intent today was to explain a little bit of the background on the law and how it's used and how it could be used in, more, in a more hopeful vein. Well said. It's a delicate uh, dance. Uh, and for those involved in it, uh, you know, you're going to have a few people that are going to come out with stubbed toes. That's that's for sure. Uh, but uh, it really is a fascinating look into, you know, something that is as old as uh, the Latin phrases that uh, help define it. So before we finish up uh, here, Tim, we already know a few interesting things about you from your time here talking to us about Forever Chemicals. In fact, that's where we learned that you're a whitewater uh, radio announcer in your, uh, your, your days. Failed uh, on both fronts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Up in, in Colorado. But I thought we would go a different route this time and talk about another aspect of your life. I understand you were an all-American swimmer in high school. Is this right? Uh, that is correct. I don't know if water is a theme here in these get <laughs> get to know Tim discussions, but but well, yes. Well, I, I guess we'll go that route because I uh, so I, I was not a swimmer in high school. I, I came to it uh, later in life, and I enjoy you know a, a daily swim with one of our colleagues here at the office who actually told me what a, a great swimmer you are. Now I I like to compare my style to kind of a flailing manatee, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah. but, but I, I'm interested. In, in your abilities, what was your stroke? Uh, you know, what, what, what did you dominate in when you were in high school? <laughs> dominate and and humbled often. Uh, I enjoyed backstroke and and what I guess would be called middle distance freestyle. There you go. And wow. so these kind of yeah, just kind of powerful strokes and enjoyed swimming the, them through high school and and kind of having those golden years. But um, when I was out in the bigger swimming world post high school. Uh, I quickly realized that there's a lot, a lot of fast people out there. A lot of fast people. And there's a lot to do outside of just the swimming pool. That so, too. That yeah, too. Yeah, Add yeah. Coelum. I got buried in the books and uh, <laughs> the rest is property law history here. Well, that uh, the swimming world's loss was our gain. And so uh, appreciate you being here again. Thank you for uh, spending some time talking about something that I think – uh, we all sort of had an instinctive uh, knowledge of, but you gave it a, a lot more depth and complexity and nuance, which I think is important. It's too easy to just kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to the concept in general, and, and really it's something we should all have a better understanding of, and I, I appreciate you providing that to us today. So uh, that wraps up things here for us today. I just want to let you know, Tim, that uh, we enjoyed the time with you. Look forward to having you back in the future. You're now in the running to be, uh, you know, one of the first to be back three times. And, and I know that that's a, there's a betting pool out there about that. So uh, get in while you can. But uh, for all of you listeners out there, we really do enjoy bringing these uh, topics to you. I uh, want to bring even more intriguing episodes and topics uh, your way. So uh, be sure to leave us a rating and or a review on the podcast app of your choice. And, and listen, if you've got a show idea, you know, drop us a line at legal at crow.com unlevy.com. So thanks again for joining us. Stay well, my friends, and we will catch you here next time on Briefly Legal.